On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Part four in Ecclesiastes, running to your funeral. What a bummer of a book. Ecclesiastes 2, today we're in verses 12 through 26, going through the entire book, verse by verse, one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. Been studying it since God first saved me in the see, it would be late 80s, early 90s, I reckon it would be. Been a long time. Let me pray and we'll get right to work. Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for Solomon's brutal, painful honesty. Uh, thank you that he was uh, really painfully honest with us about the experiences of his life and the failures of his life and the choices of his life so that we might vicariously learn from him. Hopefully that we might avoid some of the same mistakes that he made and sins that he savored and folly that he favored. And so, uh, Lord God, help us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, uh, to receive wisdom from your word today that we might walk in your wisdom and we ask this in the strong name of Jesus, who is for us the wisdom of God. Amen. Well, it's uh, sunny summertime, and that means we recently had the last day of school. Uh, if you have kids like I do, we've got five. Uh, the last day of school is a big one. It's a memorable one. It's an exciting one. It's an anticipated and longed for one. Maybe if you don't have kids, you can look back and remember for yourself the last day of school. Do you remember the last day of school when you were a kid or the last day of school for your kids? Let me ask you another question. How productive is that last day? I don't know about your kids. My kids mm, didn't get anything done on the last day of school. The teachers know it is absolute futility uh, to quote Ecclesiastes, it is chasing the wind to try and make the kids accomplish or do anything on the last day of school. So what you don't tend to find on the last day of school are test presentations and projects. Instead, what do you get? Movies, parties, veggie tales, and field days, right? We just try to keep the kids busy because they're all amped up and excited. And we know that since today is the last day, we can't get them to do anything. Why? And, and the same goes true at work. Remember your last day on the job? How productive were you, right? Probably wore your desk out from putting your feet up on it all day. Why is it if it's the last day, we don't do anything? Well, perhaps it's because if there's no opportunity for a reward or an award, there is no motivation to expend any effort to seek to accomplish anything. If I could put it more succinctly and bluntly and pointedly, if you're not going to be here tomorrow, why exert any energy today? That's the big idea. 
If you're not going to be here tomorrow, why exert any energy today? Why work really hard on something today if it's just going to be gone or you're going to be gone tomorrow? And so what happens is life is like the last day of school. Life is like the last day on the job. Those who really come to grips with this painful, brutal reality live differently. And they're, they're really forced to wrestle with, what am I doing? Because here's the big idea. At some point, you will die. At some point, death comes for us all. The Bible is real clear. All of sin, sin brings death, all die. Now, we don't know when our last day is going to be. Um, for some hearing this message, it's possibly today. For some, it's tomorrow. For others, it's weeks, months, years, decades from now. We don't know. You might live to a ripe old age. You might not make it to breakfast tomorrow. Either way, one thing is certain, you will die. You will die. And once you die, everything you were working on, working toward or working for, will have come to an end. Because of death, life can feel like vanity to quote some translations of Ecclesiastes. Because death is at the end, it can rob everything on the journey to the end of its meaning, of its value, of its purpose, of its motivation. See, death is the great equalizer, and it doesn't matter how high we ascend in life. When it's all said and done, everyone ends up around six feet under. Now, those who are getting old, battling a major health problem or prone toward melancholy, that's your disposition. You tend to see this more clearly and feel this more painfully. You know that death is lurking, that death is coming. Conversely, those who are still young, those who feel strong, prime of their life, great plans, things to do, places to go, obstacles to conquer, those kinds of people are prone toward optimism. And they don't think that much about death. It, it seems like a long ways away. And so instead they focus their gaze on carving out a meaningful life and will deal with death when it gets here a long time from now. Keenly aware of all of this, that how we see the last day really informs and determines and transforms how we live every day. This old man Solomon, and I believe at this point in his life, he's an old man. He's got the been there, done that t-shirt from everything under the sun. And he sees that the finish line of death is fast approaching. He doesn't have a lot of time left. And I think you can get the intimation of this in chapter 12 in particular. Seeing death on the horizon, the old Solomon who knows that he is running headlong toward not just the finish line of death, but, but the cliff of death. You sort of get the picture that he's leaning over his shoulder and he's yelling back at younger generations, those who are fresh out of the starting blocks of life, the, the high school 
college students, the newly graduated, the starting their careers, the preparing for their wedding, the anticipating the coming of their first child, the first time home buyer, the person who's just opened their company or moved and and got their, their future planned and in their hand. He's yelling back over his shoulder. And he's telling them that the lane that they're running in, the lane that's been so popular has also, he has found to be purposeless. So this, this book is 3000 years old, but it's a timeless book. So that makes it incredibly timely. And what Solomon is pressing into is incredibly insightful. And what he is saying is that, that when you are young, you are usually told to do two things. Study hard in school so that you can get a good job. And the result will be you'll have a good life. That's exactly where he's going today. And he is at the end of his life and he has done well in school. Other than Jesus, he is the wisest person who has lived in the history of the world. And he has absolutely succeeded at his job. He is the king of Israel, ruling and reigning with more power and prestige and prominence than anyone other than Jesus who's lived in the history of the world. Some would argue, but that's my take. And he's looking back at the end of the race, screaming to those who are fresh out of the starting blocks, running in the same lane. We're going to study hard. We're going to get a degree. We're going to get a job. We're going to start a career. And if we do well in school and we do well at work, then we'll have a great life and our life will be meaningful and valuable and purposeful. And, and you know what? This is a little disorienting and troubling and shocking from history's wisest fool, is it not? I mean, after all, is this not precisely what every good parent tells their kids? I got five kids. Dad, do you want me to do good in school or bad? I want you to do your best in school. I don't care what your grades are. I just want you to do your best. Well, Dad, do you want me to work hard at a job or not? Um, yeah, I want you to get a job and I want you to work hard at the job and I want you to carve out a career path. What parent wouldn't say that to their kids? But when Solomon says, that's not all there is. That's not enough. It's a, it's a wild goose chase without a goose, to quote one of the commentators on Ecclesiastes. What is he getting at? Is there something more to life than just your GPA and your resume? Have we missed something? Well, let's jump into the text. His first point is that we are often encouraged to study hard to figure out life. Life is complicated. We need to figure it out. How do we figure it out? We, we study hard. We go to school, we read, we examine, we learn. He says this, Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17, and I'm using the New Living Translation. So I decided to compare wisdom and foolish wisdom with foolishness and madness. For who can do this better than I, the king? Got a lot of free time and a lot of resources. He said, verse 13, I thought wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can see where they are going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Here's the problem. Both will die. There it is. There's the problem. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? 
This is also meaningless. For the wise and the foolish both die. There it is. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. So I came to hate life. Have you ever been there? Because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Here's where he proceeds from. The first half of chapter one, he said, life is like a boring rut. Second half of chapter one, he says, the world is crooked. We can't straighten it out because we're crooked too. The beginning of chapter two, he says, well, I decided then to just go have some fun. And I tried every popular diversion, whatever you can think of that sounds like a good time. I tried it twice and found that life doesn't have any meaning, value, or purpose, just out living for a good time. It's like an Easter egg hunt without any Easter eggs. So this week, he continues his search for meaningful living in wisdom and work or getting educated and getting things done, done rather are equivalent to getting a degree and getting a good job. And he talks about the wise and the foolish. And, and, and the wise are the ambitious optimists, those who you know, think things could get better. We could make a difference. The world could change. I could change. And they devote their life to study and to knowledge and to insight. And they're trying to understand the world and culture and the human brain and psychology and temperament and personality. And, and if I could just know more, then I can help straighten out this crooked mess we call the earth. Conversely, the, the fools or the foolish on the other side, and this is one of the great themes of the wisdom literature, the wise and the foolish. It's not always uh, the sinners and the holy. Sometimes it's the fools and the wise. But he says that the lazy pessimists, the fools, those who have lost any hope whatsoever, I'm never going to change. The world's never going to change. Nothing's going to change. Nothing makes a difference. Government, genetics, dispositions, trends, history. It's all so massive and so all-encompassing and so overwhelming and so frustrating that nothing's going to change. I give up. I give in. Why study? Why work? Why try? Why care? Just give up. Just give in. And what Solomon is saying is... Uh, people tend to take one of those two lanes and run in. How about you? Which lane have you chosen? The optimistic, hopeful, study hard, work hard, make a difference lane, or the sit down, I ain't running, I give up, I give in. We're not going to make any progress. Nothing's going to change. Just be a realist and stop wasting everybody's time and energy. And what Solomon reminds us is that no one who follows after him will be able to equal the extent to which he has pursued the meaning of life in the things of this world apart from God. He's saying, look, I'm the king. I got more time, more money, more resources than anyone. And I've tried both. The wise path of making a difference, the foolish path of giving up on ever making a dis difference. I have tried the wise path of getting straight A's and I have tried the foolish path 
path of skipping every day of school. I have tried the wise path of really building quite an organization and having quite a resume. And I have tried the foolish path of just going off the grid, finding a hacky sack, uh, something to smoke, something to drink, and a hammock to lay in. I've tried it all. And he decides that it's still better to be wise, well-read, thoughtful, attentive to life than an ignorant fool, oblivious to everything that surrounds you. In the same way, even if you're walking into a dark room, it's better to have your eyes open than closed because it could save you from harm. That's what he says. And you think about wisdom and learning and education. It's amazing. It's staggering. The amount of information on planet Earth is just exponentially increasing. We now have access to more data than anyone anywhere at any time. In addition, you're free to pursue education formally and informally through a seemingly limitless number of opportunities in any field imaginable. Yet, no matter how much we know, here's the one problem. Here's what he says. We will die. We will not have made a big difference in the world and as soon as we start to figure out what we're doing and make some progress in getting it done, we die. And you think about it, it is frustrating, discouraging, bewildering, befuddling that in the end, both brilliant scholars who devoted their whole lives to study, as well as those who just gave up trying to learn, grow, or change, both end up in the same place a hole in the ground, he says, to largely be forgotten. To Solomon, the whole scenario seems quite unfair. I mean, after all, doctors, teachers, researchers, counselors, pastors, parents, friends. Some people, the, the longer they live, the more they learn, the more helpful, the more valuable they are. And as soon as they start to really enter into their stride, their prime, they're gone. So this depressing scenario raises the question, why bother knowing anything? Why bother doing anything? For him, looking at life under the sun or apart from God, He's saying, why get up and go to school every day? And why work so hard? And why do your homework? And why take the tests? And, and why finish the projects? And, and why go to college? And, and why work so hard to even informally educate yourself and read books and study and take classes and listen to podcasts and, and try and learn and try and grow if all you're doing is running, 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 running to your funeral? If that's the grand finale, why are we running? Why are we striving? Why are we caring? Why are we trying? That's his summation of education. And if that wasn't bleak enough, he moves from studying hard to understand life to working hard to straightening out life. So that's his next point. Work hard to straighten out life. That's sort of the second part of what 
for 3,000 years, people have been told, study hard in school and work hard on the job and then you'll have a good life. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 23. I came to hate all my work here on earth. You been there? For I must leave to others everything I have earned. It says, I'm working for somebody else. I'm going to stack up all my stuff and then they'll get it. And who can tell whether my successor will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. Here's his summation. How meaningless. So I gave up. You ever been there? In despair, he says. Have you ever been there? Questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Have you ever had that Monday? Why am I getting up again? He says, some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? The stress, the despair, the frustration, the fear, the angst, the overwhelming sense of foreboding. He says their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Here he's talking about work. Work is formal and informal. It's what you get paid for and what you volunteer for. This can be the woman who goes to work and has high responsibilities at a corporate job. This can be the woman who is looking after her little kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is the whole gamut of all of our responsibilities. It, it falls into the category of work. And according to the Bible, work began with God, our creator who worked, who initially designed us before the fall and sin entered the world to build a culture that glorified him. He says in Genesis that God made the man to work. So before sin enters the world, work enters the world. But because of our sin, God cursed the ground so that creation continually wars, rebels, strains against us, making all our labor a frustrating toil. So our work is now cursed. That's why some of you have thought, man, my job is cursed. I'm gonna go get another job. You found out that that one was cursed too. They're all cursed. And we work our whole lives straining against the curse and we die because of the curse and ultimately the dirt wins anyways and the hole fills in around our dead bodies. Why did God do this? Not because he hates us, but because he wanted us to taste the frustration that ensues when that which is supposed to be under our rule rebels. God wants us to comprehend how frustrating we who are supposed to be under his rule have become causing us to run to him in repentance, seeking grace and reconciliation. You see, our job treats us the way we treat God. Everything that's under our dominion, under our authority, under our rule and our work, it's supposed, to, it's supposed to function, it's supposed to obey, it's supposed to work, it's supposed to come together. And it never does, right? It never does. Whether it's a home improvement project, trying to train your pet, raise your do dog, pay your bills, build your business, whatever the case may be, whatever you're working on, it's always breaking, it's always, 
exploding. It's always rebelling and it gets so frustrated. And God says, now you know how I feel because everyone was supposed to work for me and everyone was supposed to function obediently and appropriately. And through sin, you're a bunch of rebels and you're doing your own thing. And it is very frustrating. And it gives us a bit of empathy, compassion toward God. That God is so loving and so gracious and so kind and so compassionate to put up with people like me and you and us and to keep working on us and to keep working in us and to keep working for us, even though we are very frustrating. And the world is such a mess and so many things are undone that we human beings just can't accept it. We were made for a perfect world. We're headed to a perfect world and this imperfect world just isn't a home. So we continue to work in paid and unpaid laborers trying desperately to straighten out all that has been made crooked. And right now, at least in the US, I think we work more hours every year than any other nation on the earth perhaps, perhaps any other people in history. People don't take their day off. They don't take their time off. Work, 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 work. And the curse is still in effect. No matter how hard we work, we hate our jobs. We never get all the work done. We think, man, one day I'm going to retire. I'm going to retire. Then we get to retirement and something blows up. We can't afford to retire. Or we do retire. And then we find that life still doesn't come together and our car blows up and our hip blows out and our water pipes blow through and we're back to working. And Solomon says, here's what's even frustrating. You go to school, you work hard. So you can get a job and work hard so that you can buy a house and fill it up with nice things. And he says, nice things you don't even get to enjoy because you're too busy working and fixing all the broken things. And then you die and who knows who's going to get your house and your car and your stuff might be somebody that didn't even work for it, doesn't even deserve it. And yet you've lived your whole life to run to your funeral. You didn't even get to enjoy your house or your stuff. And they move into your house and they sit in your chair and they pull the lever and they lean back. And that poor chair is not even broken in because you didn't have time to sit down and enjoy it while you were working so hard to put your life together. And somebody else got your chair and they didn't even work for it. You spent 800 bucks for it and they picked it up at a garage sale for eight bucks. I'm no psychologist, but this guy's sounding a little depressed, amen? Pulling back from the daily grind to ponder this cycle of wearisome work, Solomon concludes that we work our entire lives at jobs we hate to get nice things only to grow too old to enjoy them before we hand them off to someone else who didn't even work for them. Stop to think about your work, what it's accomplishing, what you should keep, why you should keep working, if you should keep working, what are you doing? If we pull back, and sometimes we're so busy in our life, we don't have time to reflect on our life. If we do, you can get pretty discouraged pretty quickly. Some of you have been there, some of you are there, and some of you just got there, sorry. However, this, this kind of reflection is rare because we're so stressed out by the work. And this is what Solomon says. 
that we lay awake at night so overwhelmed by what we have to do that we don't even have time or energy to ask if we should be doing it anyways. How are you sleeping? They say the average person needs like nine hours a night. The average person isn't getting anywhere near nine hours a night. We self-medicate. Coffee. Energy drinks. Simple carbohydrates that quickly are converted by the body into sugar to spike the blood sugar level to give some sense of instantaneous high, but what goes up must come down. And then we have the mid-afternoon crash, and then we need the other cup of coffee or the energy drink. How's your sleep? How's your mental well-being? How is your emotional well-being? Are you laying awake at night stressed about the job and the responsibilities and the bills and the obligations and the duties and the frustrations? I, man, I'll tell you, I spent a lot of night like nights like that. I mean, Solomon here is just reading our mail. And Solomon's summary is sad. Here's what he's saying. No matter how hard you study in school to get good grades and the right degree, even if you land your dream job, you'll wind up frustrated, aggravated, and agitated to such a degree that your sleep and health will suffer once you realize that your dream life is actually your nightmare. Holy smokes, this guy's a sniper. He just scoped in America. Well, does this sound familiar? Is there another answer? I hope so. What he's talking about here, it almost sounds like he's a guy having what we would call today a midlife crisis, right? Here's what happens. So many men come to the same realization as Solomon that we've created a category called a midlife crisis to explain it. We, we actually have a word to describe it. This sounds like Solomon's midlife crisis. And that's what happens when you hit the middle years of your life and you realize that as Solomon says, your efforts are meaningless. You know what's really weird? I was, I was studying for this message and while I was studying literally the same day, I came across a news story. I think it was from a British news outlet. I'm working from memory. And it talked about the number one category of suicidal people alive today. Okay, I thought, well, I want to know who they are so we can pray for them and love them. And if I meet any of these people, maybe we can help them. And here's what the article said. The most likely person on the earth to commit suicide are men 44 years of age who are unemployed. Take a sip of my iced tea. Now, that might not mean much to you. You're like, I'm not a man. Well, I am. I'm not 44. I'm 44. You may say, I'm not unemployed. I'm unemployed. I'm a 44-year-old unemployed man. Studying Ecclesiastes on a guy's midlife crisis, reading an article about how a lot of us are suicidal. So it may not mean much to you, but oh, it did to me. A lot of people, men and women, have ended up at the same place that Solomon has. And I was thinking, I'm not suicidal. 
Praise be to God. And without the Holy Spirit's leading and God's word guiding and the friendship of my wife and wise counsel of others, those who love Jesus and are filled with the Spirit, I'm not sure I'd be faring any better than the average guy with a midlife crisis or Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so I think his insights are incredibly timely and helpful and and pertinent and practical. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the throes of your midlife crisis or a young person who is running headlong into it and doesn't even see it coming. Here's what Solomon is saying, that life, no matter what we have, where we go, or what we achieve, always has something missing unless someone is present. I notice that my, our, I should say, our uh, Grace and I's uh, oldest daughter uh, just graduated high school. Proud of her, love her. Just, I get teared up just thinking about her, talking to her, celebrating her, praying for her, with her. She's a delight. She is a joy. I'm honored by the Lord Jesus that I get to be her dad and see her grow up. And what we saw in the pressure years of high school is some kids were working so hard to get good grades. And by God's grace, my daughter got, our daughter got really good grades. She's a, she's a brilliant, godly leader, strong convictions. But some of these poor kids, man, they, they work themselves to death. They stress themselves out. I mean, they're working on an ulcer in their teen years. They're just consumed by their GPA and their ACT and their SAT and their college application and their college acceptance. And it's just, wow. Some of these poor kids and the pressure they're under, they don't, they don't have time for friends. They don't have time for sports or hobbies or activities or reading their Bible or a couple of days off. And, and that's not always the school's fault. Sometimes it is. It's not always the parents' fault. Sometimes it is. Sometimes I wonder if it's not even the kid's fault. They're just under this intense pressure of a system that just really reduces a human being down to a number and a rank. And, and I think the older you get, having stuff is great. Going places is, is pretty cool. Doing things is pretty exciting. But loving people is what really matters. And you can blow through school and you can blow through work and you can blow through life and you can know a lot and you can do a lot and overlook relationships and people and love and being loved and loving others. And I think the older you get, and I think this is where Solomon is going, it becomes less about, and I should say, if you're getting older and wiser, and, and I'm not saying I'm wiser, I'm just reading a guy who's older and wiser and trying to listen from him named Solomon. And you can get older and not wiser. There's plenty of old fools. But if you have something nice and no one to share it with, it's not as great. You can go to a place that's pretty awesome, but if it's not with someone you love, it's not as memorable. You can achieve some things, but if it's not to help and love and serve some people you care about, 
well, it's just sort of empty. And it, it kind of reminds me of my relationship um, with Grace, if I could use that illustration. We met when we were 17 years of age, and we've been together now for 27 years. We're both 44. And uh, I've explained to her over the years what I call the ministry of presence. Not P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, presence. I just like having her around. Uh, she is my nearest and dearest friend, and whatever I'm doing is better with her. And if she's not around, something is missing. And for a lot of our marriage, Grace has gone to the grocery store alone or with a parade of kids in tow. And I, I don't really like shopping. I'll just put it out there. And uh, some months ago, Grace was going to the grocery store. I was home with her during the day, and the kids are in school. And um, she was going to get in the car. I was like, hey, honey, where are you going? She's like, I'm going to the grocery store. I was like, me too. Threw my shoes on. And she's like, you're what? I said, I'm going to the grocery store. She said, well, you don't need to go. No, I don't need to go. I want to go. She's like, you don't like going to the store. I was like, no, for sure. I don't like going to the store. She's like, then why are you going to the store? I was like, I just like being with you. I would rather be in a place I'm not super excited about with grace than a place that I really like without her. So I've been following my wife to the grocery store a lot ever since. It's kind of her little joke. I just like being with her. I like hanging out with her. I like following her around. Being with her is a great gift. It is a great joy. And I would rather be in an okay place with grace than an awesome place without her because what makes things awesome is being with grace. I can honestly say that, that our our friendship has really deepened and grown in, in recent years. And, and if I could use an, an analogy to lean into a theological truth, I think God's presence is like that only more so. The Bible talks a lot about the presence of God. That God will never leave nor forsake his people, the Lord Jesus promises, that he'll be with us always. We get intimations and glimpses of this in the Old Testament where there is uh, the pillar and the cloud and it follows God's people, or I should say God's people follow the pillar and the cloud, and that is God's presence in the center of the worship of the Old Testament was the presence of God in the New Covenant. Our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit where the presence of God dwells, that life really becomes about enjoying and savoring and seeking the presence of God. And wherever we're at or whatever we're doing or whatever we have, it is better, it is satisfying, it is enriching, it is gratifying with the presence of God in a way that if we had the exact same things, or maybe even better, we would be frustrated, dissatisfied, if God's presence was not there with us. See, life is more about who loves us and who we love than what we know or what we do. Because even knowing and doing only find their meaning in the act of loving. So we've looked at education, we've looked at work, and my final point is joining God in the pool. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25 
So here's his summation after his investigation. So I decided that there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. I like that. Enjoy food, enjoy drink, and try to find a way to enjoy your job. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Some of you don't know that God is not just holy and true and righteous and He's also enjoyable. So I would ask, not only do you believe in God, but do you like him? Verse 25, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Oh, if I could wind this down. Since we're all going to die and life is a crooked mess, what are we to do with a few days that we have under the sun before the coroner comes to pick us up? What do we do? He says, well, we should be wise enough that we don't waste all our time trying to understand life or so foolish that we waste all our time trying to avoid life but instead we seek the presence of God, we stick close to God, and we enjoy the life that he gives. We eat with God, we drink with God, we work with God, we rest with God, we play with God, that God is saturating, infusing, filling all of life with meaning and value and purpose by his presence. And our problem is that we often spend, or at least I do, and I think Solomon's singing a song that sounds familiar to me, that we often spend so much time trying to figure out our life through wisdom or straighten out our life through work or avoid life through folly that we die before we actually get around to enjoying life through grace. And his big idea is that everyone gets certain gifts from God as, such as life and food and drink and work, but it is the children of God alone who walk with him, enjoying his presence, who also get deep enjoyment and satisfaction. In this way, the gifts of God are not complete without their giver. This is why a present from a grandmother means a whole lot more than just a present. The gift and the giver, they go together. And th this is a, a great, this is a great secret that our stuff and our satisfaction are two different things and that our stuff doesn't come from our satis... Let me say this again, that our stuff and our satisfaction are two different things and that our satisfaction does not come from our stuff, but from our Savior who is the giver of our stuff. Uh, one commentator likens this difference uh, to like cans of peaches, that everybody gets a can of peaches but only God has the can opener. And unless you're bringing your can of peaches to the Lord, you, you never get to open your can of peaches. There's nothing wrong with a can of peaches. There's nothing wrong with the gifts that God gives. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and sleeping and working and weeping and celebrating and enjoying the fullness of life as Jesus did but there's no way to open that can of peaches. God alone has the can opener. So it's like pulling back like Google Earth for a fuller view of the world and then everything comes into a clearer perspective. 
He says, yes, death is indeed coming for us. But, but as we look at the totality of biblical revelation, we realize death is not an end. It's a doorway. That the Lord Jesus alone has conquered the great enemy of death that he has returned to life to reveal to us what awaits us on the other side. And on the other side of death for the people of God is a kingdom where the curse is no more because sin is no longer. Where we eat and we drink in the presence of God to the glory of God with the people of God. It's a feast. It's a homecoming. It's like a big wedding celebration. The Bible reveals in this kingdom People receive rewards. Yes, friend, on the earth you may get awards, but in this kingdom you get rewards. And those rewards are given to those who live wisely and work faithfully. In this way, nothing is wasted that we study or strive for on the earth. Even though we die, we send our rewards ahead of us into the kingdom. In this way, life along the journey toward the kingdom of God, our forever home, it's an opportunity to store up our treasures in heaven just as Jesus taught. Everything you learn is not in vain. It's to the glory of God. Everything you do is not in vain. It is to the glory of God. And God rewards those who diligently seek his presence. Maybe closing with an illustration will help. Um, some years ago, uh, the family and I were on summer vacation together in central Oregon. Grace and I were... Um, busy with the five kids. They were younger. This was some years ago. And our uh, in-laws, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, who was alive at the time, he passed away a few years ago. He was a pastor that lived into his 80s. They um, had a timeshare situation in Central Oregon, so we all went down together for an extended family summer break with the kids. And the weather was perfect. Uh, the place we're staying was awesome. Their bike paths and pools and awesome places to play and open grass and the kids had a great time and families were literally everywhere kids on bikes and playing wiffle ball and jumping in the pool and playing on the climbing toys just kind of kid heaven and most of the parents i chatted with had a similar story mom and dad studied hard in school so they could go to college in college they studied even harder so that they could get a degree that would qualify them for a good job then they worked hard at that job, enduring great stress and pressure and loss and sacrifice, even to their own health and well-being, to build a career. Somewhere along the way, they fell in love with each other. They married, and once they felt ready and financially able, they started having kids and felt even more pressure to master their career and work hard at their job to provide for their family. All of this is very common, amen? And these families then saved up their money to take a nice vacation together. They wanted to be together as a family and carve out a memory. Awesome. Yet, it was really interesting. As you would go to the pools, kids were everywhere in the pools. Throwing balls, jumping in, splashing, cannonballs, jackknives. I can hold my breath underwater far longer than you can competitions, awesome stuff, love kids. And as you looked around, the parents weren't in the pool. The parents were on their laptops, working on their vacation. The parents were busy on their cell phones, working 
on their vacations. You could see moms and dads with paperwork strewn all over patio tables, sitting there in their swimsuits, going over spreadsheets and data while their kids were playing in the pool. And mom and dad weren't in the pool. Sometimes you would even see older kids stressed out, laying there, sitting there next to their parents, studying, knocking out summer school classes and college applications and summer reading projects, which aren't always bad. But the parents are working on their job and the kids are working on their schoolwork and the younger kids are in the pool playing. It was interesting. I jumped in the pool with the kids and I started throwing my kids in the air and, you know, putting their feet in my hands and flipping them upside down and all the stuff kids like to do in the pool. Next thing you know, my kids are jumping in the pool and they want me to throw them the football so they can catch it and fall into the water. And next thing you know, I got a bunch of kids asking, flip me, flip me, throw me the ball, throw me the ball. And it was awesome. And it was fun. And I love, love, love kids and being a dad. But it just kind of broke my heart. All these other parents are missing these opportunities. They're, they're so busy trying to understand the world. And they're so busy trying to change the world that they forget to enjoy the world. And I'm not against studying. I've got a couple of degrees. I'm not against working. But the moral of the story is that there's nothing wrong with studying hard and getting good grades and doing a good job of work. But sometimes you need to just put your textbook down. You need to put your MacBook down. You need to put your cell phone down. And go jump in the pool. Because that's where the Father is. God the Father is a dad who's in the pool waiting for his kids. When the Bible tells us that God is our father and we are his children, this has to be at least in part what is meant. Yeah, dad wants you to do your homework and to do your chores, but what matters most to him is getting time together and making memories and having fun with his kids. God's love for you is not predicated on your GPA. It's not predicated on your resume. He just loves you wants time with you, wants you to enjoy his presence, wants you to spend some time making a memory and having some fun. And that's the presence of God, the refreshing, life-giving, joy-altering, eternity-shaping, satisfying presence of God. God is really good. And it's really good to not spend your whole life studying about him and serving him without spending any time with him. I'd be so sad if my kids spent their whole life reading biographies about me and asking me for new lists of chore charts so that they could go do things for me and they never spent any time. I'll let you go. I think you've got an appointment with the father.